It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Horn, with my co-host, Sam Stone. We have a fantastic show this week, and I don't want to underestimate that. It's a great show this week. Great guest. It's a phenomenal show this week. So we're going to start off with a short 10-minute um, interview I was able to have with Senator Cruz. He was in Phoenix recently for a fundraiser and was kind enough on the spot just to yank me in a room, and we did a quick talk about the Supreme Court and the attack on it by liberals and his re-election, and um, just a lot, of, a lot of good stuff. It's a quick interview, and he, he's going to be back on the show this summer. So we're looking forward to that. But one thing to pay attention before we start the show is that um, Senator Cruz has an opponent, U.S. Representative Colin Allred. He was elected in 2018, and unlike um, his opponent last time, he votes with Pelosi 100% of the time. Um, he's voted for things like Against Protection of Women and Girls Sports Act. So... Folks, pay attention. Senator Cruz needs your support if you like him, and we recommend it. Here's the interview. Welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds. Today, Michelle and I are honored to have Senator Ted Cruz with us. Welcome to Phoenix. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Um, with our limited time, so what are your what are your thoughts right now on the attack on the Supreme Court? This seems to be a very new tactic, and it's disgusting. Uh, it is absolutely disgusting. We are seeing a coordinated political smear job directed at the Supreme Court. And the left is trying to do two things. Number one, they want to delegitimize the court across the board. Uh, it is the one institution in government they do not control. And they are angry that there is a majority of justices who are constitutionalists who are willing to mm -hmm. vigorously enforce the Bill of Rights. And so the left, the Democrats have decided they're going to attack the court, delegitimize the court, call it corrupt. And, and look, doing that really demonstrates a contempt for the rule of law, a contempt for the Constitution, a contempt for the institutions that protect democracy in this country. The irony that the left loves to talk about democracy, they don't care about democracy. They're tearing it down by doing this. But secondly, this is very directly a political smear directed at Clarence Thomas. They mm. despise Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. They have a particular level of hate for Clarence Thomas, not just because he is a deeply principled constitutionalist, but because he's an African-American mm -hmm. conservative. And the attacks they're leveling on him are a total double standard. Everything they're attacking him of, every other justice has done the same. They're mm -hmm. attacking him for staying at the vacation home of a wealthy friend of his. Well, one of the things I talked about this week in the Senate Judiciary Committee is just how many of the left-wing justices Right. have taken more trips, more international trips, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor. This has nothing to do with quote-unquote ethics. This has everything to do with a coordinated political smear because they hate and want to destroy Justice Thomas. What do you do? How do you combat that? You fight back, and, and you fight back politically. It's one of the things I've been urging my colleagues in the Senate. I've said, listen... This is organized. This has money behind it. Each day, they're releasing a new attack. ProPublica is the yeah, fake right. public interest yeah. journalist that puts out the initial attack. 
Then the Democrats escalate it. They use it to attack further. Then their lapdogs in the corporate media escalate it more. And I, I've told Republican senators, I've said, listen, Supreme Court justices are not equipped to defend themselves from a political attack. They don't have a staff. They don't have experience. They, they are completely ill-suited to defend themselves. So we've got to defend themselves. That's what I'm trying to do. And, and one of the things, for example, so I do a podcast every week. Right. I do it three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's called Verdict with Ted Cruz. Our podcast this week, the, the one I did this week, we devoted an entire podcast to the substance of the attacks directed at Clarence Thomas. I had as, as a guest on the podcast, Mark Paoletta, who's mm-hmm. a lawyer who has been leading the defense for, for Clarence Thomas. And the reason I did that was to get the facts so people knew and, and, and they could, could use them to, to defend it. Could you combat it legislatively? Is there anything that could be done in that arena? So, no, no? Be- because the, the Schumer Senate is not going to pass anything. Now, what we did see is really quite remarkable. We saw 15 Senate Democrats write a letter to the Appropriations Committee threatening to cut off all of the funding for security at the Supreme Court to pull the police for the Supreme Court, literally threatening their lives. Angry leftists fueled by the rhetoric from Democrat politicians. We know one lunatic who went from California all the way across the country to Bethesda, Maryland, with a gun, a knife, rope, and duct tape. He went to the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh with the intention of murdering Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And these unhinged Democrats are saying, we'll pull your security they are literally inviting violence. And Justice Samuel Alito told the Wall Street Journal this last weekend, they are making us targets for assassination. This is, it is so twisted, it is so cynical, and, and it is a coordinated effort right now. What do you feel conservatives can do to fight back on this? You know, for example, you mentioned all these liberal justices taking these trips. Yeah. Have not heard a peep. Nope. And you're never going to see that in New York Times, nope. Washington Post. Nope. What can they do? Well, do what you're doing right now. This podcast is an important step. Stand up and speak out. Speak out to your friends. Speak out to your neighbors. The reason I did the Verdict podcast, 40 minutes of of substance going through each of the claims one at a time, is because it's a podcast that can be shared. It can be shared with others. So share it with your friends. Share it with your neighbors. Put it out on social media so they know the facts. Push back. Push back. Um with your friends, with your colleagues, with your families, with your co-workers. Uh, and then we need to see people in leadership actually lead and mm-hmm. defend justice. Thomas. Correct. Correct. Michelle? Yes. Yeah, so well, I wanted to ask you about what's happening um, along the lines of activist corporations. Yeah. If we could, sure. I, I just sure. because that is a hot topic right now. Yep. What can the public do? I mean, we see boycotts as is, is something that is taking off when we look at... Um, um, Bud Light, but what are some of the options out there? And what do you think about that as a tactic? Well, listen, I will say with Bud Light, um, it has been incredible how a woke corporation, you know, the phrase go woke, go broke, right? is right. really playing out. And you got to think the idiots in the marketing team and Anheuser-Busch apparently have never met their customers. They, they don't actually know <laughs> who drinks Bud Light. They've never been to a bar. But why do you think this is working? Because we've all we've had we've had other corporations come out with a with an agenda. Um, you saw that in Georgia when you saw um, the national the, the right. baseball league go out uh, take their you know league out of there. 
But this is resonating. This is actually doing something. So it is, and I think there are a couple of things. Um, you're, you're right. Historically, conservatives have been lousy. That's right. Out. We're terrible at it. We we talk a big game, but then when it comes to it, we don't. So a couple of things played out. One, I think a lot of Bud Light's customers were genuinely pissed mm-hmm. uh, because it felt like the company didn't give a damn about its customers and looked down on them. You guys right? are a bunch of idiots, mm-hmm. and we look down on you. And part of it is also, and this is an interesting thing about beer, there are different goods for which the cost of substitution is higher or lower. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, look, Major League Baseball had the idiocy of yanking it out of Atlanta and taking $100 million of business away from primarily African-American-owned businesses to move it to Denver, a city that's 91% white. It's Mm -hmm. one of the whitest cities in all of America because these woke liberals are going to show how much they care about black people by giving a bunch of money to white businesses. Right. Now, that pissed a lot of us off. It was ridiculous virtue signaling. Yeah. But I got to say, look, I'm a sports fan. I'm mad about it. But at the same time, not watching sports Is, hurts. Mm-hmm. I, like, I get <laughs> so much It was too expensive. Joy. That's a, right. But you can... There's lots of bad beer options. So, so Bud Light was particularly vulnerable here because it's so easy to substitute. Look, number one... I used to drink Bud Light when I was younger. I will say one of the advantages of getting older, I, I now drink better beer. You're, so I, so I don't drink a lot taste. of Bud Light to begin right. with. But, you know, the thing about it is if you're a regular Bud Light drinker, it's easy to shift to Coors Light. It's Absolutely. easy to shift to Coors Light. Like, like there's no, it's almost effortless. They're interchangeable. Yeah. And so there's not a lot of cost to switching. And so they've seen 20, 25% drop in revenue. I mean, it's been... Which is why why this recovery will not be quick for them. Yeah. I feel like Chris Rock really was the catalyst, his video that he made, to promoting this. And I just... I love that we're fighting back, and I love that people are. I will say, up. shooting cases of, of Bud Light with an AR-15 was quite <laughs> <laughs> quickly. You're running for re-election. Yes. How this? You've run various elections. What have you learned in each election that's made you better prepared for the onslaught you're going to face this time again? Another hundred million dollars against you yeah. because you're the worst person in the world in the liberals. So look, there's an old phrase: uh, you either run scared or unopposed, and and I only know how to run scared now. I can tell you this election, I'm running for re-election for Senate in Texas in 2024. We're going to win, but we are facing one hell of a fight. The last re-elect I had in 2018 was the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history. We were outspent three to one. The Democrats more than doubled Democrat turnout mm-hmm. in Texas, and we ended up winning by just 2%. Mm-hmm. This year, I've got an opponent, a Democrat congressman, Colin Allred, who's a former NFL player. Uh, very, very liberal voting record. In fact, his first four years in Congress, he voted with Nancy Pelosi. How frequently do you think he voted with Nancy Pelosi? 100%. 100. <laughs> Literally not 99, not 98, not a single <laughs> wow, vote did he differ from Nancy. So his views are wildly out of step with people in Texas. But at the same time, in the first 36 hours he was in this race, he raised over $2 million. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. If you're a Democrat, other than Donald Trump, there's no Republican in the country you want to beat more than me. And so every left-wing anarchist, every Antifa member, every Marxist in Manhattan, in Chicago, in San Francisco is giving money. And so I would say to your listeners, 
Come to tedcruz.org, tedcruz.org, tedcruz.org. Come contribute because we need the resources to fight back. We're going to win, but we're going to win because you stand up just like the customers of Bud Light and you say enough is enough. We're not going to lose our country because what I'm doing each and every day is leading the fight in Washington against Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and the Marxists, the cultural Marxists who are trying to destroy this country. We got to stand up and save it. Senator Cruz, thank you for joining us, and thanks for coming to Phoenix. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Folks, are you concerned with stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office? I certainly am, Chuck. It's a mess. What if you can invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? A portfolio where you know what each monthly statement will look like, but no surprises, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's why I've actually started working with Y-Refi, because they are a fantastic opportunity for people to get rid of the risk of the Biden stock market and get into a product that generates a strong monthly return for themselves and their families. This is absolutely one of the best products out there, one of the best ways you can invest your money right now with everything that's going on in this country. And when you do it, you're actually helping people get out from under crushing student loan debt. Why Refi helps students refinance their student loans and then they create that opportunity for investors to earn a great return while they're doing it. Make sure you check them out, investyrefi.com, or call them at 888-YREFI24. Welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. On the line with us now, and one of the things I like most about this program, Chuck, is we get to talk to people who a lot of the media landscape doesn't have a conversation with. We're touching on uh, subjects sometimes like this one where there is just a dearth of news, and that has been the case out of Afghanistan really since the uh, precipitous withdrawal of U.S. forces and support, and that left a lot of people that we were working with there in very good faith Uh, in a very difficult position. One of those is on the line with us right now, General Sami Sadat, uh, former commander of Afghan Special Forces. He was educated at the Royal Air Force Academy and King's College. Uh, There's a fantastic PBS documentary about him called Retrograde uh, that you can check out. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. I I pulled it up there on Rumble last night. Um, Not just a, a military commander, but he is obviously one of the leaders and hopefully one of the future leaders of Afghanistan. General Sadat, welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you today. So after the, I I think we all know here the story of the U.S. pullout, but after that, what are the conditions like there now? What what is going on? Because I'm not aware of almost any coverage at all in Western media of Afghanistan at this point. Thank you for asking this question. Um, Unfortunately, after the withdrawal of the U.S. forces and the collapse of our government, there is three main fallouts that came out from this. One is the humanitarian crisis, which really is um, breaking the Afghans um, on the ground. It it caused migration of almost two million people outside Afghanistan. And, and, And that's out of how much population to begin with? So uh, Afghanistan is about 40 million people. Currently, we estimate that there might be uh, 36 million Afghans inside Afghanistan. So uh, it's 
it's a growing um, population. And after the the collapse of our government, um, some two million Afghans immediately um, have uh, be- became refugees around the world, and most of them are in our region, running into Iran and Pakistan, which uh, traditionally has not been our friends. But a face of the Taliban people, you know, are looking for a better alternative. And at least in Iran and Pakistan, they're not getting killed or their nails are not getting pulled out in the prison cells uh, as, the, as the Taliban do. A couple of things that has changed dramatically upside down. Uh, first is the women's rights. Um, the Taliban Amir has banned women from working. Um, they banned women from uh, going to schools uh, and universities. They also banned women traveling outside the country or inside the country without a male chaperone, which is completely the opposite of uh, what we had during our time as a government in Afghanistan. The second big thing is really hunting um, the uh, uh, Afghan uh, special forces and the Afghan soldiers, basically, and government officials and killing them and torturing them systematically and um, also uh, going after everybody who actually posts anything or says anything against the Taliban. So this is an absolute dictatorship um, oppressing the people of Afghanistan in order to advance their um, political, um, political agendas. And they are relying mostly on the extreme interpretation of the, the religion of Islam. And they... Their idea is to take the people of Afghanistan back to the basics of Islam, say the uh, 1,500 years ago when Prophet Muhammad um, came first and the way he exercised and that. Um, even that is not true. So they kind of use that as an excuse to um, uh, oppress the people into this extreme um, situation where the Afghan uh, people are. Unfortunately, the prospects in our country look uh, very, very bad and dark. There is no work for Afghans. There is no opportunities to study. There is no opportunities to travel outside. Um, you are not free to talk or exercise um, some of the civil rights that, as a human being, uh, people have elsewhere in the country. The second fallout, really, is about the comeback of terrorism. We all know al-Zawahiri came back to Afghanistan, but Zawahiri was only one of the 16,000 uh, al-Qaeda members who immediately pushed into Afghanistan. Today, as I speak to you, there is um, al-Qaeda's um, operation center, intelligence center, recruitment, and al-Qaeda's main headquarter for Middle East, North Africa, and also um, uh, Indian subcontinent is based in Afghanistan. They have... Um, some 800 of their most uh, celebrated and battle-hardened commanders moved into Afghanistan with their families, and they have control of their manned training for overseas uh, operations. As I speak to you today, there is an estimated um, of uh, 40,000 foreign fighters in Afghanistan. Most of them are loyal to al-Qaeda, but some are also loyal to um, ISIS, the Afghan version of ISIS is called ISKP, Islamic State in Khorasan province. So let me ask you this question. Um, President Biden really spoke in a derogatory manner regarding the Afghan troops, basically calling them cowards. Will you tell your audience how this makes you feel and how this makes those soldiers who risk their lives, their families, when you have a president of the United States make comments like that? 
I think we all know who's the coward here. I think the people who turned their tails and left us on the battleground with a lot of enemies, with a lot of terrorism, are the cowards. I think President Biden is, is the real coward here. We fought hard. We lost over 200,000 Afghan soldiers. We have, um, we have on our hands today half a million Afghan disabled veterans. And we, hard, we fought as hard as possible. We fought Al-Qaeda. We fought ISKP. We fought all the rivals of the United States in that region. Remember when 9-11 happened in, in the U.S., um, um, Americans came to Afghans for help. And my father back then was a resistance commander in northern Afghanistan. He and his troops, like many other Afghan commanders, joined the U.S and, you know, started the quest going after al-Qaeda and also going after every single enemy of the United States. For 20 years, not only we fought for our own country, but we fought alongside this brave United States military uh, for both of our enemies, and we put al-Qaeda and other terror groups on their knees. Basically, we denied them time, space, and resources um, that um, they, they have today. So the Afghan soldiers... Uh, fought as much as they could, but it was the Doha agreement, you know, signed between the United States and Taliban that actually broke our back and going behind our back and making a deal with our enemy um, and then cutting off all the supplies to the Afghans and then immediately pulling out um, U.S. military troops. What do you think would happen? And and I, you know... The, The result was predictable. General, we have just about a minute before we go to break here. And, and one of the things I want to touch on when we come back is the comparison to Ukraine. We keep being told in this country that unless we continue sending hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars in support to Ukraine, to their soldiers, that they're going to fall to Russia. But that's exactly what happened to you. That support network that was essential for the ability for your forces to to compete on the battlefield disappeared overnight and Afghans are suffering for it. I want to touch on that a little bit when we come back and continue this conversation here in just a moment, folks. Make sure you're downloading and tuning into all of our content on Substack, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren of Sam Stone. We have with us former commander of the Afghan Special Forces, General Sadat. He's talking about the fall of Afghanistan, um, President Biden's cowardly leadership on this issue. Um, General, thank you for being with us. Let me ask you a question here. What I, I want you to explain this to people because people don't understand what the U.S. was really doing is pro- providing logistic and air support to help your soldiers on the ground. And your soldiers on the ground were trained on this way how Americans fight, right? I mean, that's how they were trained. And so explain to people what happened when Americans decided, because they're, they're being ready to pull out, that they're not going to provide this air support anymore and what this meant for your troops on the ground. So to give you a bastardized version, by 2014, um, American soldiers have largely withdrawn from combat operations. So it was the Afghan forces leading combat operation, conducting counterterrorism operation. 
essentially was the U.S. Navy SEALs and ODAs doing some night raids going after what we call it the high-value targets, so the al-Qaeda members like the son of bin Laden, al-Qaeda leader for Indian subcontinent. These are like joint operations we conducted. Largely, the rest of operation was upon the Afghan forces until 2020 when the U.S. decided to deal with the Taliban without you know, informing or consulting with us. So effectively, the U.S. went behind our back and cut a deal with the Taliban. It eroded our legitimacy at home and also abroad internationally by, you know, you see from Secretary Pompeo and Ambassador Khalilzad standing beside uh, Mullah Brother, the, the Taliban's second-in-command internationally. So it was a kind of recognizing the Taliban. That was the first and most significant blow to the Afghan government. The second was um, when uh, at, at least President um, Trump um, put a, a conditional based withdrawal. So he told the Taliban that, hey, if you fuck up, I'm going to keep the U.S. forces and we're going to rejoin the Afghan forces and come after you. But once, you know, President, Biden, uh, President Trump left, as President Biden came, he absolutely said, I want to pull the plug. I don't care what the conditions are. I don't care what happens in that region. That was when actually things really, really started going wrong. The first thing um, President Biden did is um, to order all the contractors to leave. So in today's warfare, we are using a lot of technology, and most of the technology is sustained and maintained by the contractors outside the military because no military in the world has everything in-house, like maintenance of Black Hawk helicopters, laser-guided missiles, small uh, you know, attack aircraft, like sophisticated software systems and maintenance of air transport and capabilities. All of them have left without even informing us. So we were kind of left. Hold on, this, hold on. They, uh, General, they, they left and did not tell you? They just like one day no, you were no. out in the field? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, we were shocked. We woke up the next day and they said, oh, sir, we don't have the helicopter maintenance anymore. I'm like, what are you saying? Are you kidding? He's like, no, sir. So I make phone calls to the U.S. side. They're like, yeah, they left, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, we're looking for a new way to maintain helicopters. One of the ways they proposed is like, Afghan helicopters should fly to UAE for maintenance. This is like four countries away. And some stupid uh, proposals came our way. And, it, you know, Afghanistan is, is a mountainous country. You need Air Force to maintain fighting because there is no way you can resupply or medevac or kazavac your troops uh, by, by the ground uh, forces. So that, you know, put us in a, in a disadvantaged position on the battleground. The third thing was after the Doha agreement, the U.S. Air Force stopped supporting the Afghan forces with airstrikes. We had an Air Force. We had quite a capable Air Force, but it was very small, and we didn't have some of the like advanced um, fighter jets and, and strike capabilities. We had these small aircraft that were conducting um, uh, strikes as a close uh, air support. That was not that was not enough. The last blow really was when our uh, our weapons shipments were held back, um, and they they never arrived. Um, after, you know, President Biden took over into um, our, our, our side. So our soldiers lost to the, to the last bullet. Give you an example is when Afghanistan fall into the hands of Taliban, the entire Afghan Air Force had one laser-guided missile. 
So that is the level of our ammunition, effectively. And nobody should tell me that soldiers can fight without weapons, soldiers can fight without ammunition. You know, you can have very capable soldiers, but if you can't, you know, give them the ammunition and the the, the, uh, the supplies, they cannot fight. The trouble was, yeah, you know... General, I, I apologize, I have to cut you off. We have, we have uh, just about 20 seconds before we go to break here. Folks... Make sure you download the podcast-only version of this one because we're going to continue on with General Sadat on the podcast. We want to be able to explore this further. Obviously, this is this is important stuff, and I don't think most Americans are aware of it. Breaking Battlegrounds coming back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. Folks, are you concerned with stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office? What if you can invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like, but no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. This is a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. And what if, by investing, you could do well by doing good? Talk to our friends at Y-Refi. They're local. You can meet with them. They're trustworthy and honest. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10.25%. Just log on to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888-YREFI24. And make sure you tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. We're honored today to have with us final segment the Honorable Chris Campbell. He is a chief policy strategist for Kroll, based in New York. He is the former assistant secretary of treasury for financial institutions under the Trump administration. And he was majority staff director to the U.S. US Senate Committee on Finance. He is a gentleman we've had on before. He has actually been in the negotiations on the debt ceiling. Chris, welcome to the show. And Things haven't got better since we talked to you about six weeks ago. Yeah, unfortunately not. I, I, I can tell you this, Chuck. I'm actually very happy I'm not in, on Washington anymore. Just, uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're in for a, a bumpy ride this next couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, it's – what do you – if you had a crystal ball, what – I mean – the one thing I like about what Republicans have proposed, which I think, I mean, this, I would just go one simple thing. Everything, they always want to make things confusing, which I don't understand why Congress does that. So for this, I would just simply say, look, we're going to cap spending increases at 1% a year for the next 10 years, right? I think the markets would love that. Well, and, and, and you know, come back to last year's spending levels. Yeah, right, right. Those are easy that, arguments to but, make. But, and what's, we're not but what's funny about that, I heard a Democrat congressperson this morning from Texas say, well, we, we really don't control much of that budget. <laughs> so we're talking about entitlements and mandatory spending, which they don't want to talk about. So what happens? I mean, they, they talk about, well, this re- we really don't have that much discretionary we're responsible for, but we have all this mandatory, but they don't want to touch mandatory. 
Yeah, look, there's no question that that the president um, has absolutely taken off entitlements, and many Republicans that have as well, and in fact, former president did as well uh, during his administration. Uh, I think that the the, the real challenge, Chuck, is if you said as I said when I interviewed with you last time, Washington really doesn't have a uh, taxing problem, revenue problem. It really has a significant spending problem, and they can just continue spending money like drunken sailors. Um, so, you know, the, the, the challenge is this, I mean, and I, I, your point's well taken. I think it's, you know, I, there's always an art of legislating uh, and PR and the ability to be able to message that in a way that voters understand is really important. And Washington does have a real, um, uh, they have a challenge in, in kind of over, overcomplicating things. Um, so, but, you know, again, so all that being said, level setting, um, the, the challenge we have now ahead of us is, what can the Republican and Democrat get to get together on and agree on in a very precious little bit of time? Um, not to scare your viewers or scare the markets, but you know, the, the uh, having been a part of these negotiations now for a long time, um, it just comes down to a, a process of math. Um, and it's kind of you know, the number of days and that there are just processes in place in the Senate and the house, as well as, um, you know, the scorekeepers, the CBO and JCT, but others that, that have to have to put a price tag on bills, all of that takes time. Uh, when you add all of that up, and assuming that everyone want to get everyone wants to get this done, which is just not not going to be the case, uh, we're we're talking almost two two weeks procedurally to get everything done. That's assuming a bill is already drafted. We don't even have a framework of an agreement yet. So we're we're very close to a deadline where we actually may be just physically impossible to pass something before that. Explain to our audience. Okay, so folks, Chris Campbell is a fiscal hawk. He believes our spending is out of control. So I don't hear any whining people on here saying, well, he just wants to spend more money, right? But you can be a fiscal hawk and also realize not getting this done has drastic consequences, not only for the U.S., for the world. Would you explain to Chris what happens to a household that this does not get passed, a U.S. household? Yeah, again, um, after hearing myself from what I said last time, I, I really try to, to talk about this in terms of where, where your listeners are going to understand, which is their, just their household. So everyone has a credit card. Um, and if you choose not to pay your credit card, so a credit card is, you know, is, is things you've already bought, um, and at the end of the month, you've got to go pay it back. Um, really, the, the debt, the nation's debt, is, is exactly the same way. So these are, these are, these are promises or, or money that's already been spent that we're going to go back, go back and pay off our credit card. Uh, if we choose not to do that, well, if, you know, if your viewers choose not to do that at home, um, the bank takes away their credit card. Um, and they're faced with it in that, you know, the, then the, the family's faced with a lot of challenges, right? So they, if they need more credit, they're going to have to pay more interest and higher interest rates because, um, because of that, they're, they're less credit worthy as what, and what, what the banks would say. Um, really exactly the same way in the U.S. government. So when the government goes out and actually has to borrow more money, they buy it at a significant premium. Well, that premium drives up home insurance, I'm sorry, mortgage rates car rates. So, and everything that we do and all of the, the interest that we pay uh, and the interest rates we pay at, you know, as average Americans doing our, our, running our, you know, working our own lives, um, all of that becomes extremely more expensive because of Washington uh, will have been unable to, to get together and pass a debt ceiling increase. So there's an enormous trickle-down effect that makes everything much more expensive 
what you think of inflation is bad now. If, if, we, if we breach the, the debt limit, I mean, it's, we've, we've never seen this. And the, the cascade of evilness and then the, the, the challenges has become a greatly much more. Think about it this way. Um, we're able to, as a nation, borrow money. Um, and remind, remind your viewers that we, the government spends about $1.3 for every dollar it takes in. So we just we have a real spending problem, and it, it's a real challenge. Uh, we need and we need to get that under control. But um, the with with that being said, there's we ha- uh, there must be a cha- must be a way to channel um, uh, and and make that 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 spending co- come down significantly. Um, otherwise, we're in we're in real 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 challenges for many many generations. Chris, on that front, I I mean normally I feel like. In these type of situations, Republicans and Democrats tend to be equally intransigent. Um, it seems like there is a very serious concerted effort on the Republican side to put forward reasonable proposals that address the core issues here and get us over this hump. And I, I think the Biden administration just appears frenetic. They don't appear to have anything other than just unlimited spending. Just just open the cap and let us roll. Is that is my impression wrong? No, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, I, at least I have not. I have yet to hear uh, the Democrat, Democrats, including the president, outline anything, any spending reductions that they're willing to they're willing to do. Uh, the only part that's put forth a a reasonable um, uh, set of of, a, of examples of where we could throttle back and, and spend less, um, you know, and perhaps try to find do more with less and get with government. Uh, is Republicans and you know Speaker um, McCarthy? You know, did a, effectively a heroic, heroic thing, getting you know the majority of his of his caucus together uh, in a very difficult environment, as everyone everyone saw his his election uh, as the Speaker. Um, you know, and got got his his, his party together and did that. Candidly, what, what many people forget to forget on this process is the president actually asked. The Republicans to do exactly what they did, and then he then chastised them for doing for doing what they asked them to do. Right? He asked the Republicans to come up with a with a proposal, uh, and they did. Um, he still refused to negotiate after Republicans passed their proposal, um, and now we're we're negotiating at a time in a time constraint that is so compressed that it's almost physically impossible to get done. Does it? It seems to me, and in this obviously, I have zero insight into this White House. Um, but it seems to me like what they're counting on is that they're going to win the PR battle when when stuff starts getting shut down. Yeah, look, it's it's a um, a very very interesting and very very scary calculus because there is no PR battle to be won in this process. Um, and I, if the U.S. loses the reserve currency of the, of the world, right now the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency of the world, and it allows us to be able to borrow the money we, we borrow at the rate that we borrow, we borrow from. If the world loses confidence in the U.S. dollar and our debt, um, that changes generations of Americans and the, the, the economic future of candidly the entire world, but certainly our country. Um, I mean, it would be it would put us in, in, a, in a on a path to decline that would be almost un, unavoidable. Um, is so, is and, it avoidable now? I mean, it really seems like we're heading there as fast as this administration can get us there right now. Look, I mean, they're, they're certainly spending a lot and they certainly would like to tax more. Um, 
but the, yeah, like I think that there's, you know, I, I, like I think the voters and, and your listeners can uh, uh, can make it can make uh, you know, can look back from what the last administration did to this administration, what this administration's done on the on the economy. Uh, I think you know if you put it apples to apples, I think that you know I could, that the policies I think speak for themselves. Um, but the the reality is that that um, you know I I think we're still miles apart from from an agreement. Um, and it's going to be so. We we actually may be seeing now uh, the possibility of a very short term extension, uh, so we don't breach that deadline. Because again, no one really knows what the what happens after that deadline. All I can tell you is I can I can promise you nothing good happens after that deadline. What do you so? Do you think a a, a short term extension is probably what reality is going to be as they talk through the summer? I don't. I can't see Chuck. I can't see another path forward. Um, I just don't. I just really don't know because, uh, you know, when you put together a, a, a compa- comprehensive and complex piece of legislation, that this is going to be, it's going to reduce uh, spending, and there's going to be different, you know, knock-on effects of different, you know, if you reduce spending here, it may increase spending, you know, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. So when the Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan scorekeeper uh, for for money in the in the Congress, is going to have to, you know, leave their um, and their imprint on this and so is the joint committee on taxation that does uh scores on tax um and so like that's you know like that's going to take some time and then the procedures in both house and senate so like the reality is it's just really the it's going to come down to uh you know likely a short-term extension so, let me ask you this so let's go and say we get a short-term debt extension which i think hopefully cooler heads at least get together and do right um once they, let's say they have, let's say we just do a simple agreement. Say Republicans come and say we want to cap discretionary spending one percent growth for the next three years, not ten. We'll do three. We'll you know we'll, we'll negotiate on this, and they say great. Well, we'll do this debt ceiling increase. How once you reach an agreement, what are the steps? How long does it take to get this done and signed into law? It's about two weeks, um, but that but that assumes that everyone agrees. So. What your listeners are your listeners are, gonna, are, gonna, are probably already hate Congress. They're going to hate them more after I say this. <laughs> but, uh, but it's just there are there's this crazy procedures in the Senate and the House that that you know in a good way they actually they maintain minority rights, right? So Republicans right now are the minority in the, in the uh, Senate, and uh, Democrats are the minority in the, in the House. Um, but that there are just there are just a lot of procedures that give minority a lot of rights in the Senate, and they can really drag out um, a debate as long as they want to. And so I mean, it's you know I can, they can't frustrate a debate forever, but they can certainly draw it out for days and days and days as, as the Senate debates. Um, and so as those things happen, you know, for the geeks out there, it's called cloture and try to find ways of, of ending debate. Um, there are 30 hours of guaranteed debates um, on each cloture vote. There can be lot, multiple multiple votes uh, to get to bill passage, and it's going to bore everybody. So the, the reality is that we have to, um, you know, just you have to bake in time to get these things done. And so it's about a two week process. At the very, and again, assuming that you're going to go at breakneck speed. Chris, how do folks find you? Um, and, and folks, get on LinkedIn if you're not there. That's where Chris is at a lot. You can see a lot of his clips. He has interesting things daily. Um, highly recommend you follow him. He has a good grasp of what's going on. But Chris, besides LinkedIn, where else can people find you? 
Uh, Twitter as well, Chuck. And it's and uh, anyway, and I pre- so much appreciate your your, uh, your invitation to come back, and uh, I'm so proud of what you're doing, and uh, look forward to joining you again. Thanks, my friend. Have a great weekend, folks. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Join us for our podcast portion where we continued our conversation with General. Sadat and talked about Afghanistan and our cowardly withdrawal from it. And um, the guy we're going to have on again in the future. Fan. And visit us at breakingbattleground.vote. Download our podcast, share it, rate it, folks. We're continuing to grow and we need your help for more. Welcome to the podcast-only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, we're switching up the program a little bit today. We, we obviously had uh, Senator Cruz on for the first segment. And then our second and third segments uh, were with General Sami Sadat, former commander of the Afghan Special Forces. We had other stuff planned for this segment, but we've asked General Sadat to continue with us. He's graciously uh, allowed us the extra time here because – This is stuff, General Sadat, that you're saying that most Americans, the vast majority of Americans have no idea. Chuck and I are pretty well-informed people. Neither of us understood the depth of what essentially is a betrayal by the U.S. government and U.S. people against the people of Afghanistan that we were working with there, like yourself and and the many members of the Afghan government. Um, And I, I, I really feel, Chuck, that all of us are to blame for letting this happen. It's not just one president or two or the, or the leadership of this country, but we had an obligation when we went in there to stay more informed, stay on top of this, and and bear faith with our allies. Correct. Um, General, you were talking – continue what you were talking about, um, logistics and so forth. Yeah, so I, I I think I almost was done with the piece that okay. um, you know when our, our logistics didn't arrive. But I do want to make one point that um, we are grateful for the American service members um, who fought alongside us. They brought us freedom. They trained us. They helped us rise above our uh, rivals in the region. Afghanistan became a vibrant democracy. The society has completely transformed. Like we have about. Uh, 70% of the Afghan population is under the age of 30 years old, and these are all um, boys and girls trained uh, abroad. They went to schools inside Afghanistan. They had jobs. They traveled the, the world. So these are this is a very different society. You know, we are grateful to the American people, um, especially the U.S. military, but we also have to acknowledge the fact that you know things went wrong as well. And it began from Washington. We did whatever we could. And remember, we were not just up against Al-Qaeda and Taliban. You know, countries like Pakistan, Iran, Russia, China, they all supported the different factions of Taliban and um, Haqqani network against the Afghan government. And these countries traditionally do not have a big problem with, with the Afghan government. They supported our enemies in an attempt to, you know, um, increase violence because of the Americans. So we were in this together, and we we didn't, you know, let go. We fought uh, as much as we could with, for, for our partnership. And I think that was important. I want to touch base quickly, if, if that's okay, on the third fallout from Afghanistan. Please. So as I'm speaking to you today, the third fallout is, once the U.S. left Afghanistan and Taliban took over, China became the strategic partner with Taliban. Uh, 
China has recently signed a $10 billion um, contract for Afghan lithium. They signed another $4 billion contract for um, Afghan copper, another $1 billion contract for Afghan oil, and they're negotiating to take the Bagram Air Base, which was um, the biggest air base in the region for the U.S. forces. They want to take it for their commercial um, Chinese business center. Sure. But I suspect that they want to take it for the military purpose as well, because this is a, this is a military base, effectively. And Bagram is one hour away from China. So if you know things go wrong, China could rapidly deploy a large, um, force of their, you know, cruise missiles, um, air, like fighter aircraft and all those things into the Bagram airways. And I mean, there is a strategic sense to this. And, and Afghanistan is one of the richest countries in terms of minerals and oil and gas. And so if China continues the competition with the U.S., they will be exploiting Afghan resources. Unbelievable. Recently, China also offered to build a road through Afghanistan to Iran. And this is not for Afghanistan. They have a contract for 25 years old, for 25 years of oil contract with Iran. So the way they, they can get it is from Afghanistan. To give you a larger perspective, the U.S. has strategically been planning to keep China circulate, you know, in circles by, you know, from Atlantic Ocean to Indian sure. Ocean to Japan, Singapore. If China continues this path with working with Afghanistan and Iran, then this strategic encirclement would mean nothing because they will have enough resources from Iran and Afghanistan to compete with the U.S. And you can stop Chinese, you know, trade vessels from Africa and elsewhere coming back to mainland China. As long as they have access to Afghanistan, they could potentially continue the strategic competition. And in a large large run, they will put the U.S. Um, on a disadvantaged position in that region of the world. Well, I'm going to go back here for a minute about um, your soldiers. Um, I, I know when the America withdrew, I had friends who had served in Afghanistan, and they were hustling trying to get translators and their families out without the U.S. government help. Um, um, Sam and I have a dear friend that spent weeks on this, raising money, getting people out. And they got some but not all. Will you explain to our audience, first of all, what was the relationship with your soldiers and U.S. soldiers? Did they become close? And two, when the withdrawal happened, did they view it as a conspiracy? Did they blame the U.S. soldiers and feel like they betrayed them, or did they clearly know that this was an administration decision? So, good question. The first thing is, um, and you, you mentioned you have watched Retrograde, this documentary developed by National Geographic. When I was in the battlefield in southwestern Afghanistan commanding a corps, it was a uh, team of um, USODAs, and then I had Navy SEALs in another corner of uh, my area of operations. So National Geographic really followed uh, myself and the um, USODA Special Forces in that region, and you could see and feel the tender relationship between the Afghan soldiers and U.S. soldiers. We were really close. I could tell you that the closest militaries and relationships and trust between the U.S. military and any foreign military would have been between the U.S. and Afghan militaries. I think that was something that was built over the course of 20 years. This was built in the heart 
you know, battlefield, this world building, the training, uh, you know, centers and all that. We respected each other. We loved each other. Some of my best friends are in the U.S. military. And when the U.S. soldiers left, for me, it was also personal. Not only, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soldier. I, I, I said, okay, you know, when, if the U.S. is leaving, I'll continue fighting. And this is what I did. But personally, I miss them. You know, every night we'll get around the pitch of fire, share a cigar, and then start talking about operation. And the next morning, everyone would embark on their own operation. So when they left, I, I kind of felt, um, you know, uh, I, I miss them. But generally, the impact on the battlefield was really, you can't underestimate that. For normal Afghan soldiers, they thought this is some kind of conspiracy. The U.S. is now dealing with Taliban, they're empowering Taliban, and the U.S. Air Force is not shooting Taliban as the aircraft is circling above us, and we continue to fight with the... So that was really a struggle for people like me and the general officers trying to explain to the soldiers that this is a political decision, the U.S. military has no role in that, and, and, correct. and you know all of those things. But it was difficult, and it was really excruciating to um, to see that happening. We tried for 20 years to build trust and brotherhood, and all of a sudden, you know, the plug was pulled, and everything, you know, started crumbling around us. As we, as soldiers, on my part and the U.S. part, we we just watched everything with dismay and struggled in every corner to maintain what what is remaining of of. Uh, off Afghanistan, but unfortunately, it, it we couldn't. Well, General, um, our time is running out. Are you based in the United States? Or are you based outside the United States right now? No, I'm based outside the United States. I'm traveling around the U.S. I did a tour of you know trying to get some of my friends together. I want to go back, fight the Taliban, and free our country. And this is why I'm here in the U.S. to ask the United States because we were allies and, like, help us free our country. I'm not asking for soldiers. I'm not asking for Air Force. I'm asking for some legitimacy and whatever material support we can well, get. we would love to have you. Absolutely. We will have our producer, Kylie, coordinate with you. We'd love to have there host a, a dinner and a presentation with you of people. Um, the work you're doing is extremely important, not only for the world, but more importantly for the Afghan families um, and brave soldiers who led for this and um we um we we want to stay in touch get you over here but we'll kylo reach out we want to know when you're back we want to get you out here to phoenix where we're based out of um and as development happens general we we would love it if you reached out to us we will make time to always get you on the air with us here um i i think these are stories uh, and uh, information that you're giving us that we're not going to get anywhere else, but uh, nobody is getting anywhere else. And so thank you for taking the time for us today. Uh, it's a pleasure to talking to you. All the best, guys. I was in Phoenix a month ago, a month and a half ago. So, um, you know, it, 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 we can definitely talk yeah, about getting Let's getting get, back together. Let's get you back. Um, folks, this is the end of our podcast portion of Breaking Battlegrounds. We want to thank you, General Sadat, for joining us and extending your time. As we close here, we have a little fun video of a um, Kamala Harris word salad. We hope you enjoy. General, thank you, and we'll have you on soon. I hope to see you soon. All the best. Thank Godspeed. You. That, was a, that was a fantastic interview. That That's the kind of thing I really like that makes doing this show worthwhile. 
Chuck. I agree. And I hope everybody will sh- download and share with your friends what's happened over there. Yes. It's extremely important. Uh, America. America embarrassed they, itself. We failed, we failed. We failed our friends. Yeah. And, you know, and I understand. It, it, we the, don't I understand the comment. We don't want an endless war. No. But 25, you know, even the U.S. military chief of staff saying we need to leave 2,500, 3,000 troops in there and why we didn't do that and let this completely fall apart with such a minimal well, presence. And, and understanding is, you had gone six years without essentially any U.S. Well, casualties. You know, look, We're not, look, you know. 2010, Obama pulls out of Iraq. ISIS comes. Trump comes back and decides just to blow him to smithereens. So Iraq has, you know, control again, right? We don't seem to learn. So now we've pulled out. Now they've got 800 battled Taliban, Al-Qaeda commanders in there who who have so much more skill than when we were attacked on 9-11. Right. That's what people are saying. Now, I don't know if it happened. 20 years of war they've learned from also. I don't know. I don't know if people understand this. That doesn't necessarily mean we get a terrorist attack on our homeland. Um, we're probably a little bit prepared. But remember, we are a world superpower. We have U.S. Installations well, and interests throughout the world. The, They're the, easy targets. The rest of the world, too, needs to start stepping up the rest of the Western world. I mean, I was seeing a map yesterday of terrorist attacks in Europe in the last five years, and I don't think it gets coverage even much in European press. Mm-mm. It certainly doesn't get covered in American press. But they're facing a, just a constant rash of attacks over the last five years there. Right. I, you know, look, this stuff has real consequences. And then he brought up the issues with China. Why we do not look, you know, frankly, a little bit more aggressively at the economics and, and bringing these areas into our sphere. If we're going to be there spending money fighting, we need we need to play the, the international game that China's playing. It just, I, it just seems like we did everything wrong. Anyway, folks, we hope you have a great weekend. Enjoy the Kamala ha, ha, Harris. Have, have a glass or two on Kamala because I think she had a few. Have a great weekend. Everything is in context. My mother used to, she would give us a hard time sometimes and she would say to us, I don't know what's wrong with you young people. You think you just fell out of a coconut tree? (laughs) You exist in the context of all in which you live and what came before you. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.